in a rural farming community on a five-acre farm. Unbeknownst to many of the public, the idyllic surroundings hid a dark and disturbing secret. In 2011, a boy only 15 years old was dropped at a wildlife ranger training camp. Little did he know, just 10 weeks later, he would be fighting for his life in hospital, eventually losing his battle after suffering over 61 injuries, amongst them a broken arm, ribs and chemical burns. And it would later come to light that he was not the first to suffer this horrendous fate. But his experience would catapult this disturbing reality into the media. This is the story of Raymond Bates. Hello and welcome to Murder and Mayhem, a South African true crime podcast hosted by me, Bella Monsoon. I'm a mental health professional, so Murder and Mayhem, a South African true crime podcast, explores real-life crimes occurring within South Africa from a psychological viewpoint. Every week, a new case is examined and we delve headfirst into the motives that drive people to do what they do. Join me weekly on a journey into the minds behind the madness as we traverse murder, mayhem, and much more. Let's start this episode with the person who matters the most, Raymond. Raymond Bias was born on June 2nd, 1995 in Boxburg in the East Rand of Johannesburg. From his early life, his father was not in the picture. But his mother, Vilna, managed her very best to raise him. Growing up, she had never known her father and her mother had been married four times. For this reason, she desperately longed for Raymond to have the stability that she never had. Some days were harder than others and she would later admit that she may not have been the best mother in the world at times. For the first nine years of Raymond's life, it was just the two of them forging on. And then entered Ghais Nazar, 49 years old and a car salesman. Up until this point, Vilna had described Raymond as a good boy. But something seemed to change when Ghais entered the picture. Now, what you need to know about Ghais is that he was a very traditional Afrikaans man. He had been conscripted into the South African military when he was 18 years old and he had served two years. Although short, those years instilled a sort of discipline and specific mentality within him, often quite common in those who have served in the army. And this is how his worldview was altered and affected. And so this is how he planned on raising children with strict discipline and an understanding of hierarchy. At first, things were difficult, as Raymond was rebellious and Ghais was determined to be seen as the man of the household, the traditional role of men throughout the past. The familial difficulties seemed to ease up a bit after Raymond's half-brother was born. He was named Ghais Jr. or Klein Ghais, as often the Afrikaans families will refer to a child that is named after an older family member. However, there never really seemed to be a very strong connection between Ghais and Raymond. And here's why I say that. Over the years, Ghais would constantly buy Raymond sports equipment like cricket bats and rugby kits, even though the family were on a constrained budget. Now, that may have been considered a sweet notion, except for the fact that Raymond 
had no interest in sports whatsoever. But Khais was convinced that he would man him up. Yeah, spoiler alert, it didn't work. As Raymond approached his teens, like many others his age, he rebelled. But this rebellion was quite next level, and he ended up running away from home on multiple occasions. He was also soon diagnosed with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and placed on Ritalin, which he refused to take. He also began to struggle in school, often just a bunking class altogether. Before high school began, he was sent for a private treatment, where, in his mother's own words, doctors attached electrodes to his brain and it worked for a while. Right, so I'm pretty sure at this point you're like, wait, Bella, what did you just say? They used electroshock therapy on a child? Well, no, not exactly. Well, maybe not. So this is actually a treatment called external trigeminal nerve stimulation. It is intended for patients ages 7 to 12 years old who are not on prescription ADHD medication. Yeah, I know it sounds a little bit much, but it was actually approved by the US Food and Drug Administration, known as the FDA. However, that approval was only given in 2019. But Raymond had received his treatment in 2007. So whether this unregulated at the time treatment was indeed the treatment he received or whether he was part of some other kind of experimentation, we don't really know. But what we do know, according to his mother, is that after a while it just didn't work. He would go on to attend at least three different schools and he was often bullied to the extent where one time someone held a knife up to him. And when he was in a fearful situation, according to his mother, he often soiled himself, which, as you can imagine, only led to more bullying. At home, he was less fearful but more disruptive, according to Chais. He was apparently smoking, swearing, always on his phone, and disrespectful. And just before he was expelled from his last school, his mother had pulled him out. And then Reis found a solution. A camp run by a former soldier known as the General, who promised to make men out of boys. Yeah, it is just as charming as it sounds. Anyways, Reis was all for it, especially after hearing from a friend that it had helped fix his cousin's son. Yeah. Vilna had agreed, probably as a means to appease Reis and just to end the difficulties and help everyone to get along. And so a loan was taken out, as it was going to cost 20,000 rand for those three months. But apparently at the end of it, Raymond would have a very good opportunity of securing a job. And so, without having a say, of course, Raymond was signed up. Raymond's mother and Reis had then visited the farm in Moylanda, which literally translates to beautiful land. It's a farming area and it's not as beautiful as it once was, with many farmers struggling to make ends meet. The entrance to the camp was framed in fake animal tusks, with an electric fence spanning the length of the property. In the general study, he had photos of himself across all of the walls along with a charming flag of the Avia beer. 
the Afrikaner Weerstandsbewegung, which translates to the Afrikaner resistance movement. So, for my non-South Africans, the RVB are an Afrikaner nationalist, white supremacist, paramilitary organization in South Africa. They were founded by Eugene Terblanche in 1973 as a means to resurrect the lost Boer republics as a whites-only homeland. They fly a flag with the three sevens symbol. As a former paramilitary group in South Africa, the Arviabia claims that the three sevens symbolize supremacy over the devil. And yes, it does resemble a swastika. There was a picture on the general's wall of himself with Eugene, of course. Gais would later state, It was well set up. I knew it would be tough, but the army made a man out of me. That's what I wanted for Raymond. The contract with the translated words ex-military leader had lettering stating that it was highly confidential and within the company claims it had said, we instill faith, discipline, rules and regulation, respect, hard work, hard education, tough physical exercise, bearing, literacy, numeracy, efficiency, reliability, teamwork animal care and conservation, and community defense. De Kocker spoke to the success of his training, saying that he had trained over 300 boys and they all had jobs across the country. Although at the time Vilna had believed that many of them had gone on to become safari guides, the truth is that they probably ended up as guards for the farms due to the spate of farm murders that are often spoken about in the media, in particular in Afrikaans communities. On a side note, which I will delve into further later, there is a large discrepancy between the figures and percentages publicly disclosed and the actual statistics that have been fact-checked by non-profit organizations. And this discrepancy often leads to a host of problems on its own. And so on January 12th of 2011, Raymond, who was 15 years old at the time, arrived in the small farming town for a three-month eco-wild game rangers training course. This camp was also located in a very secluded little town. His mother Vilna would later say, I sent my son on this course to make him a better man. He was excited about attending the course. He loved animals and was going to learn scuba, as there was a lake just an hour from the camp. Raymond was in perfect health at the time, nearly six foot tall with newly cropped blonde hair. The last picture to mark the entry into this camp of horror would see neither himself nor his mother smiling, as they posed for a photo that Ghais Nazar took. Ten weeks later, things had taken a drastic turn for the worst, and that photo would serve as a reminder of the beginning of the end. So, what happened? Well, before we get into that, let's talk about where exactly Raymond had been sent. It was actually quite disturbing to realize that places like the one I'm about to discuss still exist in this day and age. And so, let me introduce you to the Eco Wild Game Rangers Camp. This so-called Game Ranger training camp offered the promise of turning effeminate boys into manly men. 
The business itself was set up on the farm of the general, Alex de Cocker, a 49-year-old man. Alex de Cocker was born in 1964 in the midst of apartheid in South Africa. He went on to serve two years in the military and that kind of became his identity for the rest of his life. He would often wear the apartheid South African Defense Force, the SADF uniform, even after leaving. He also began to refer to himself as the general, although there is no record of him ever even reaching that rank. He lived with the principles of authoritarian rule on a five-acre farm without electricity or running water. His home was a single-story house, and he lived there with his wife and his children. He was a class A parent, often beating his children with a broom, and reportedly even throwing a glass at his daughter. And with this wonderful mindset, it was on his farm that he ran the Camp of Horrors. But he didn't do it alone, he had help from his right-hand man, Michael Erasmus, who was 21 years old and had been a part of the farm since he was a boy. But more on that later. The premise of the camp? Well, parents paid 20,000 rand to send their sons off on a three-month game ranger training course. The camp had been advertised by Alex since 2006 and it promised parents that they would turn their boys and morphies into men. But what went on in this camp was far from your standard game ranger course. In 2007, they had entered the police's radar and you'll hear why later. But a preliminary police investigation found that there was paramilitary-style training presented on the course. Alex and his co-instructors would address each other using military ranks and skills like endurance running and leopard crawling were taught. Part of their training was also apparently a two-day fussbait, which basically translates to an endurance march. But besides the more standard activities, the punishment inflicted upon these young men was incredibly disturbing. Prepare yourself. Amongst a host of other things, they would be tortured with boiling water and even dragged behind a bucky, which is basically a pickup truck. And the treatment of Raymond was the most horrific of them all. Immediately after Raymond had arrived at the camp, he was led inside and his phone and his bag were taken from him. He was given clothing to wear, which greatly resembled the apartheid South African Defense Force uniform. A khaki shirt and slacks, brown shoes and a green beret. He was then taken to his tent where he would meet his tent mate, who would be instrumental in providing later testimony. From the beginning, he was treated poorly, and bullying him was encouraged by the general, Alex. I mean, this was after all how great men were made, right? Like any sane person, Raymond had soon tried to escape. He had made it as far as the neighbours who had then brought him back, and the punishment had continued. Three weeks after being abandoned at the camp, it became too much for him, and he had tried to take his own life by hanging. His attempt had failed. 
The second time he had tried to run away, he was discovered before he had even left the farm. And this time, the punishment was far more severe. Gerard Oosthuizen, who was 19 years old at the time and sharing a tent with Raymond, would later allege that he had seen both Alex and Michael tie Raymond up naked to a chair and flagpole. They had then covered his head in a pillowcase and electrocuted him. This account was corroborated by Michael in later testimony. He had said, and it was translated from Afrikaans, Alex told me to throw a bucket of water on him, put the pillowcase over his head and he shocked him, then hit him threw water on his head and kicked him in the wrong place. This went on for a while. After this, Raymond had been chained to his bed, where he would be chained every single night, to prevent him from running away or trying to take his own life. He was forbidden to bathe and was instead forced to stand naked and be scrubbed with a hard bristle brush by Michael. He was refused access to the bathroom as he was apparently too dirty and not allowed in the house. He had also been forced to eat his own feces. One day after he had spilled washing powder, he was forced to eat that too and he ended up vomiting up foam. He was hit often with a shovel because Alex believed that it would be harder to determine what weapon caused the injury. He had boiling water poured on him and Alex had even slammed his head into the wall on one occasion. Whenever he would fall unconscious, Alex and Michael would kick and slap him until he would wake up. On the daily, Raymond had become too weak to carry out some of the manual labor tasks assigned to him, such as cutting the grass with machetes and stacking stones to build a dam. And so he was beaten with planks, a hose pipe and sticks when he failed to perform his duties. And during this time, he was cut off from all communication. His mother had attempted to visit and call her son, However, she was denied all access to him. She had even driven to the camp, but upon arriving had found it deserted. And so she had just assumed that the boys were on a field activity somewhere. On Valentine's Day, Alex had arrived unannounced and he had told Vilna that Raymond was having difficulties. But not to worry because, translated from Afrikaans, he would win him. After six weeks in the camp, Vilna was sent a photo of Raymond in which he looked extremely thin and unhealthy. She would end up being able to speak to Raymond on only three occasions. After a second photo revealed that he was incredibly emaciated and showed many cuts and bruises, she had immediately called Alex to find out what was happening. It was then that he had told her that Raymond kept injuring himself. Geis had also added to the conversation, Training is hard. You lose weight and put on muscle. It's not supposed to be easy. Alex had then gotten in touch again a few weeks later and he had asked for Vilna's medical aid details. 
On the 12th of March, after she had threatened to call the police, she would speak to her son on the phone for the very last time. She later stated, Raymond was only allowed to speak to me on speakerphone. When I asked him why he was hurting himself, he told me, Mum, I'm not doing it to myself. Alex de Cocker had then called Vilna just 11 days later to tell her that her son Raymond had been admitted to hospital for some tests. But this was far from the truth and the horrors that would await her. It would later transpire that Gerard, Raymond's tentmate, had walked in on him as he had fallen and begun to have a seizure. Gerard had called for help. But when Alex arrived, he said that Raymond was just faking it. Michael had then arrived and had attempted to bring Raymond back to consciousness by hitting him in the face. He was then eventually taken to hospital. Vilna, in the meantime, had rushed to the mediclinic in Vereniging where he had been taken, but when she arrived, she was not let in. Why, you may ask? Well, because the staff had been told by the man who had brought Raymond in that his injuries were as a result of his mother. Yeah, you heard me right. Eventually, after all that mess was sorted out and the confusion was cleared up, the authorities were sent to the camp and Vilna was allowed in to see her son. She was met by a sight that will be forever etched in her mind. Raymond was dehydrated and convulsing, with his left arm broken in two places. He had over 60 different wounds, including cigarette burns, chemical and electrical burns, as well as broken ribs. Some of his wounds were weeks old. The tips of his ears were missing. He was severely malnourished and tests confirmed that his kidneys were failing. A medical report stated that his chances of recovery were virtually zero and that he had brain damage. On the 20th of April 2011, Raymond passed away after an almost four-week battle in the intensive care unit. And you know what? He wasn't even the first one to suffer such a fate from that very same camp. It would soon come to light that just four years earlier, Eric Kallitz, who was 18 years old at the time, and Nicholas van der Waalt, who was 19 years old at the time, had both died after being enrolled in the very same camp. According to Eric's sister, Mathilde Groenwald, Eric was impressionable and struggled to keep down a job because he was born slightly brain damaged after being born too early. Eric was considered a miracle baby as he had been born three months premature, had died in the incubator, but then had been brought back to life. Unfortunately, this had left him brain damaged, and he had never finished school. He could only keep basic security jobs, and he would earn around 1,500 rand a month. He couldn't afford the 10,000 rand camp entrance fee at the time, but he had agreed to pay off the debt, and he had signed a two-year contract. And the reason why he had found this camp to begin with? Well, his brother, Brian, who was an instructor in the camp. His severe beatings had occurred when he had asked to leave the camp. Alex de Cocker had then told him that he wasn't a Morphe and that he would make him a man. Eric's family had then been notified initially of his death via an SMS. 
Yeah, you heard me right. An SMS. The cause of his death? Well, a heart attack. But of course that wasn't the real story. Later, that cause of death was changed to a seizure and then dehydration. But it was eventually revealed that Eric had died from bleeding on the brain. And Nicolas? Well, he also had a heart attack apparently, even though there was clear evidence that he had been choked with a seatbelt. But somehow, the camp was still allowed to run. Inexplicably, Alex and his assistants Bianca Pronk, who was 18 years old, and Jacques Manz, who was 18 years old, were granted very low bail at the Swart Ruchens Magistrates Court on April 18, 2007. Alex de Kocker was given a suspended sentence in 2009 over the death of Eric, and he escaped charges altogether over Nicolas, whose death was ruled as being caused by a heart attack. But this time, Alex would not be as lucky. After Vilna had sent the authorities to the camp, Michael was immediately taken into custody. But Alex was nowhere to be found. He would later be on the run for a full week before turning himself in. The story then hit the news. Immediately, social media vilified Vilna, alleging that she knew exactly what she was sending her son into. It got so bad that she ended up having to relocate. As the trial began, more details began to emerge, including the fact that the camp was actually never registered to train game rangers, and the certificates they offered were phony and a ploy. Alex and his employee Michael Erasmus pleaded not guilty to the charges of murder, child abuse and neglect, failure to provide adequate clothing, food, housing or assistance, as well as two charges of assault. Alex would go on to blame Michael for orchestrating the abuse of Raymond, whereas Michael would state that Alex was a perfectionist and he had said, if you don't think like Alex, you get hit. You become like a robot. He later admitted to hitting Raymond, but only under direct orders from Alex, who had stated that Raymond needed to be set onto the right path. Although he was the only one in the camp with a phone, he had feared getting in trouble if he called for help. Alex had also reportedly told him that if he took the blame for what had happened, he would be given a car as well as a position on another farm. During proceedings, Alex would also often stare directly at Michael for extended periods of time. During Alex de Korkara's testimony, he had said of Raymond, He sat the whole day and did nothing. He was full of tricks. Raymond has lied before and been caught out. You weren't there to see his tricks. That boy pulled a lot of tricks on me. His mom said he was a problem. Alex was also adamant that all of Raymond's injuries were either self-inflicted or caused by another boy at the camp. He said that some of the injuries that could be seen on Raymond's body were caused by himself as he had just run into the pump house one day. What? Alex also attempted to state that he was often not on the farm, a fact that was disputed. And in an interesting turn of events, Alex's own son Anthony aided the state in the prosecution of his father. 
This came after his father had tried to implicate him. From what I can tell, the de Cocker family was left out of all legal proceedings. Alex would later state, as he denied the charges, Yes, I was negligent. There are a lot of things I neglected to do. Alex, however, was later described by Magistrate Retha Willemser as a pathetic witness. She would also state that she found it absurd that he claimed he was not aware of the boy's injuries. Alex had also later testified saying that Raymond had an attitude and he did not want to listen and was a vinghat. She would also later state that Michael was a willing participant and he was not just following orders. In Alex's opinion, he viewed himself as providing crucial services for the farming community. And he seemed quite unperturbed by the charges laid against him. In February of 2015, the Vereniging Regional Court and Magistrate Retha Willemse found Alex de Kocker and Michael Erasmus guilty of not only murder, but child abuse and assault with the intent to cause grievous bodily harm. During the sentencing and verdict, Alex was expressionless. The judge stated that he had shown no remorse throughout the trial and that his actions were premeditated and his torture was systematic. This was also not his first offence. He was sentenced to 20 years for murder along with 5 years for child abuse and 2 years for assault to do grievous bodily harm. He still attempted to appeal the decision. Michael Erasmus, on the other hand, was seen as having the potential for rehabilitation and thus he was sentenced to 3 years under correctional supervision with a 12-year suspended prison sentence. Essentially, that sentence would have gone into effect if he had committed any transgressions in the next 5 years. Michael's lawyer, Chris Dacher-Smith, don't ask, said a report by a correctional officer revealed that there were so many mitigating circumstances to justify correctional supervision. After the sentencing had been handed down, Vilna had said, I have mixed emotions, but I'm happy that they were both found guilty and that it's come to an end. I think he's sitting and smiling down on us and is proud of everything we've done. It wasn't easy to be here all the time, but we made a promise to Raymond. And although some form of justice may have been served, are there more camps like this in South Africa? And how and why did they come about? Some believe that Alex's camp may have been a recruitment center for the Avia Beer's paramilitary wing, the Eistechada, Iron Guards in English. This was suggested by Eric's sister in 2007. It is alleged that Alex issued all trainee rangers with Avia Beer membership cards, which, in his own words, made them untouchable. However, this claim was later denied by the Avia Beer leader at the time, Eugene Terreblanche. Later leaders would also accuse de Kocker of discrediting the Avia Beer by using the organization's logos and flags even though he was apparently not even a member. Whether or not this is the truth or just another cover-up, 
who knows. The other belief that was far more widely spread was that this camp was a reparative or conversion one designed to make men more manly in accordance with societal norms. This wouldn't be the first of its kind and unfortunately probably not the last one either. So why are these camps even a thing in South Africa? Well, without justifying their existence in any way or form or absolving the guilt of the perpetrators, let's delve deeper. The apartheid past of South Africa has a major role to play here. As the fight for democracy, freedom and equality began to pick up momentum, some of the white population began to fear the uprisings and change. This fear, unfortunately, has only seemed to grow over the years. However, in many ways, it is kept hidden, just out of the public sight. On farms in rural areas, in the microcosms of actions, and sometimes even in Facebook comments. As I briefly mentioned earlier, statistics such as stating that the murder rate on white farms was 133 per 100,000 are often shared. However, after Africa Check, a non-profit organization, validated many of these claims, it was discovered that the rate was more like 0.4 per 100,000. It is not to say that these murders are not happening, but rather it is precisely these types of inaccurate data that fuels and drives fear. And Alex profited from these fears by turning vulnerable boys into fighters who could protect the interests of a single racial group. These fears are in part what still motivates white South African parents to send their sons to such camps. In their minds, society is only getting more dangerous, and thus they want their sons to be as manly as possible, so that they can defend themselves whatever dangers they may face. Damien Barr, who later wrote a book, partly inspired by this case and partly fiction, had said. They are genuinely afraid that they are going to be made extinct by some race war that doesn't exist, that isn't happening. They are terrified. It was really clear to me that whether or not the boys who were murdered in these camps were gay, they were certainly victims of homophobic violence. Because they were perceived as being gay, because they didn't care about sports, or they were interested in books, or they were effeminate, or in some cases, they had learning difficulties. They just didn't.
التي in the right back. 